Welcome to this podcast of Thornside Stories, a mix of sun and cloud, a comic novel in stories, written and narrated for you by me, Christopher Cameron. This weekly 20-episode podcast series will contain all the text of the published book, presented one chapter a week. And welcome to Thornside. Chapter 17 Evening Out The Midsummer Evensong was a seasonal milestone for both St. Ninians in Thornside and St. Bride's in Workforth. It was the last choral service of the year, held the third Sunday of June. After this, the churches would enter summer mode, and the choirs would break up until Labor Day. Clergy and singers of both churches joined forces for the event, alternating venues year after year. This year, the service was to be hosted by St. Ninian's. The Evensong and the following buffet dinner in the church's recreation hall were talked about and planned for weeks ahead, and everyone looked forward to the occasion. Everyone except Ashley Buff. Ashley knew that the St. Ninian's choir ran a poor musical second to the power and glory of the ensemble from their sister church in Workforth. The Midsummer Evensong was the only time in the year the two choirs sang together, and Ashley was sensitive about the fact that the chasms separating their respective artistic abilities would be once again evident to both congregations. Every year, Warren Athol, the organist at St. Bride's, tried to nurture a friendly kind of rivalry between the two churches, but Ashley would never rise to it. Let's give your sopranos the descant and see how they do, eh, Ashley? Ashley knew how they would do. Will your basses take the low note and behold the tabernacle? They couldn't and wouldn't. All set for those sixteenth note runs in All We Like Sheep? Only if they performed it adagio. Ashley watched over his flock like a shepherd, and this included knowing their abilities and limitations and protecting them from wolves who would seek to expose the weakest of them. He knew that the St. Bride's choir was twice as good as his because they had better singers, and that they had better singers because they were twice as good. It was a maxim in the choral world that good singers would go where the singing was good. There was a bit of a snowball effect, where a proficient choir would pick up the best singers as it rolled along, and the other choirs would melt away into shapeless puddles. Years earlier, When a Lockport TV station had broadcast their Christmas Eve service, Ashley had heard his own choir as he had never heard them before. Despite all the hard work that had gone into preparing the music, despite the bright lights, the colorful robes, and the presence of the bishop from St. Cuthbert's Cathedral in Port Percy, the choir sounded terrible. It was then he had learned what to expect and what not to expect from them. There could be a kind of shrill desperation in the sound of a church choir, Ashley knew. The wavering pitches of so many unyouthful voices, mashed together like a pile of wet leaves, could blur and decay the harmonies, and reduce the listener to imagining the music more than hearing it. The sopranos sounded as though they were crying out for something they had lost and would never have again. The basses reminded him of what a condemned man must feel when he has exhausted the last avenue of appeal and now knows exactly how 
and when he will die. The sparse tenor section was sustained by some fearless postmenopausal women. The altos, bless them, were inaudible. He had tried once long ago to recruit some children to soften and enrich the sound of his choir, but parents knew enough to send their kids to St. Bride's, so in the end he gave up and resigned himself to the fact that life was unfair when it came to singing voices. And so the owners of the leftover non-voices processed up the aisle to Ashley's choir stalls on Sunday mornings, clutching a hymn book and a folder out of which was sliding the music for the weekly anthem. Choir directors who have been in the business for long enough have learned the hard way that there is no mention in Psalm 100 of the fact that in order to come before anyone's presence, let alone a deity's, with a song, it is necessary to be able to sing in the first place. This minor omission encouraged church folk across the country to go at it every Sunday morning in pursuit of a noise that was musical as well as joyful, a noble but elusive and occasionally painful goal. Ashley no longer minded any of this. He asked only their willingness to show up to practice each week. He would take it from there. And take it he did. He loved his choristers for their optimism and heart, and he let them know this, not for their musical accuracy. He didn't let them know this. The choir that congregated on Sunday mornings, he realized, was a culture more than an art form, a community more than an ensemble. It was a spirit, not a body. Even the choir dynamic itself contributed to the art, Ashley always thought. Who was feuding with whom? Who had a hard week at work? who was imagining whom naked under their choir gown. It all added up to the mix of sound the choir made every Sunday morning, and he would defend it against all detractors. Warren Athol himself, Ashley thought, was a piece of work. Adored by the congregation of St. Brides, and endowed with a similar self-adoration, he pretty well ran the church he played the organ for. He had cemented himself into a position where he was considered by nearly everyone in the parish to be indispensable to the Christian liturgy, and maybe even to Christianity itself. When he needed to, he ran roughshod over the clergy, the administration, and the staff, eventually getting whatever he wanted in the way of budget and musical repertoire. He dictated the weekly hymn and anthem selections to the rector, who might have had some suggestions of his own but didn't dare voice them. He had even designed a new set of gowns for his choir, including an ermine stole for his own robes, and bought them matching music folders. On Sundays, he sat at the organ console like a Scottish thane, with his dog, S.S. Wesley, snoozing on the floor beside him. This last touch might have raised eyebrows in other churches, but at St. Bride's it was taken as a sign of their music director's dominant artistic temperament and no one dared think otherwise. The choir of St. Bride's, and in fact all of Workforth, took themselves seriously. Not known to everyone, and of only mild interest to those who did know, was that Workforth was not the original name of the town. It was initially called Effingham, after Elijah Effingham, who had owned a large tract of land nearby. But in 1902, the town council voted to give it a more civil name, after a spate of offensive jokes began circulating among the local workers, such as, I want to make a sandwich, where's the effing ham? And don't forget the effing pickles, and so on. 
Workforth was adopted as a town name that better spoke to the Protestant ethic of industry and sobriety espoused by the town founders. Of course, the St. Ninian's choristers made use of this knowledge whenever they saw a chance to needle their St. Bride's colleagues. All of which is to say that on that third Sunday of every June, always the steamiest one of the season, most people said, choir members, clergy, and attendants from both churches would pull their cassocks and surplices over damp sundresses and clammy t-shirts and process up the aisle for the midsummer evensong. Even snog, Lindsay Sterling, the choir's wit and sometime literary critic, had dubbed it after a typo appeared several years before in the bulletin. A bulletin, Warren Athol loved to point out, that had been written and printed at St. Ninian's. To be fair, it was the year that Mrs. Higginson had been briefly in the hospital, having something unmentionable attended to, and a temporary clerk had done the typing. After the service would be the second part of the long-awaited evening, the annual chicken dinner in the church recreation hall. Despite a habit some had of calling the event the Fowl Supper, it was known as a gala finale to the church's long year and was loved by everyone, especially S.S. Wesley, who hung around the kitchen looking for handouts and got them. So, are you... Barbara's voice rose higher than she wanted it to. It was a shallow, breathy, little girl voice. Not hers. She hated that. Are you dumping me? What a terrible word. We're not in grade nine. Then why do I feel like I am? What's changed? She wished she could just this once not cross-examine him. But the questions tumbled out. Why were you even attracted to me in the first place? Why did any of this happen? She and Lucas were sitting in her car in the church parking lot with the windows open. They never did this, never sat together in one car. But Lucas had said he wanted to talk, and Barbara knew what about. The Thorn River crept by off to their left, almost sighing with torpor. The close air suggested thunder later on. Although dusk was still hours away, the sun was starting to disappear behind the spire of the church, and Barbara could see the choir members arriving for the warm-up before the evensong service. She was still damp and shivery weak from their love-making just minutes earlier at her place. Lucas appeared to have recovered more quickly. Two things, Lucas said as if summing up for a board meeting. That second night when we were out, I kissed you on the neck and heard a sigh escape from you, a sound that could only have been involuntary. As controlled as you seemed to the rest of the world, I wanted to explore more of your involuntary sounds. I was something for you to explore? Yes, he said. His bluntness was somehow more hurtful than sharpness would have been. You were a possibility. I wanted to learn you, memorize you, fill in the blanks to what I'd imagined. To me, you were the wide, undiscovered sky. And now I am what? The old familiar backyard? Are you just plain bored of me? Do you need to seek out new women? To boldly go... She stopped. You said two things. The air was thicker now, as before a rainstorm. It lay on the surface of the water like oil, and flowed with it downstream. There's something I need to tell you. You should know that you've always been beautiful to me. What do you mean, always? You've only known me since last winter. She paused when she saw him looking at her. Several things he had said during the past six months began to coalesce, 
An icy shiver shot up her neck. Haven't you? You never knew me. You would not have known me. This is getting creepy. What is it? Have you been stalking me? I was walking beside the river one night last November. He began as if telling a child a bedtime story, listening to the choir music coming through an open window from inside the church. It was the night Father Bannon drove into that tree, do you remember? I saw the car crash, and I started over to help, but then this whole crowd of people came running out of the church. So I hung back and watched for a minute. When the light hit your face, I thought you looked familiar. I heard someone talking about going to the pub afterward, and so I went there myself. I wanted to see if it really was you. So we did know each other? We both went to Birchgrove Collegiate, in the Glebe, in Ottawa. Well, I know I did, but I don't remember you. I know. I was two years behind you, and you had no idea who I was. I was also two years away from being noticeable by anyone. I've never had such a crush on anyone before or since. To me, you were the perfect girl. I used to stare at you across the cafeteria. I know you can't imagine what went through my mind, the young, unformed, and completely wrong ideas about what boys and girls did together. And I never forgot you. I kept you in my mind for all those years, through university and a long, unsatisfying marriage. Which is why I recognized you as soon as I saw you. I joined that awful choir, and even arranged to do the narration in the Christmas pageant, all so you would be impressed by me. And if truth be told, it worked. Should she be amused by all this, or shocked? She tried to keep her voice even. So, let's recap here. You knew who I was in high school. You had fantasies about me. Barbara couldn't bring herself to be more explicit. Then, when you recognized me last fall, you thought you'd, what, make them real? Did I still seem like a teenager to you? Was that it? It sounds a little perverted, the way you describe it. In a way, yes, it was a gift. The girl I dreamed about as a teenager ended up in my arms. And was I worth it? Did I... Was I like you had always imagined? She hated herself for asking this. That's hard to say. This was somehow not the answer she was hoping for. I think when we meet in reality, long-held fantasy disappears instantly. To tell you the truth, that would be refreshing, she said. I'm not sure if I had any specific image back then, he continued, ignoring her interruption. If anything, I probably pictured your body as a smooth expanse of skin without any distinguishing features, like a store mannequin or a Barbie doll. Yes, maybe. The allusion to her name went over his head. She wondered for a second if he remembered that Barbie was what they used to call her in high school. I don't even think I knew what any girl looked like when I was that age. It was more the fact of you in today's world, all these years later, that someone who had occupied so much of my mind back then was so close to me. She could tell that he was delivering his strongest argument even as he admitted to this. There was no doubt that his finesse with words was seductive. But his technique was showing, and it was not attractive. In fact, it was creepy. Did he feel it too? No, he didn't. But you never said anything. Why wouldn't you tell me this? Was it a kind of thrill, keeping it a secret? I have to say that, yes, it was. A bit of a turn-on. Frankly, I couldn't resist. 
Think about it from my point of view. She did not want to think about it from his point of view. A kind of calculating selfishness, almost meanness, now seemed to emanate from him. This wasn't some cute adolescent crush come true. This was a deliberate plan to dehumanize a fantasy object, for reasons that had nothing to do with her. He wasn't telling her all this to make her feel better or to enlighten her. He wanted her to know how lucky he felt that she had reappeared by sheer coincidence into his life, and that he had peeled away all her layers, literally and otherwise. And he wanted her to feel lucky that he'd done this. He was proud of himself. He believed he had won something. When I saw the chance to get to know you after all these years, he continued, I couldn't resist. At first I was waiting to see if you would recognize me. Then when you didn't, I was all set to tell you, but the time never seemed right. Then I just didn't, and it turned into a kind of game. And eventually it was too late. So I just enjoyed you. All of a sudden she was tired of this almost academic discussion. She wanted him to go, but uncertainty held her in place. How was she supposed to feel about such a bizarre, warped situation? Why are you even telling me this? What's the point now if we're breaking up? You've lived out your teenage fantasy, and now you're satisfied? Funny that you put it that way, he said with a smirk. Barbara didn't think this was funny at all. But in a way, you're right. You were my imaginary partner for most of my life. Like most imaginations, the reality eventually overshadowed it. So since you asked, yes, the fantasy is over. They don't last forever, do they? He is almost persuasive, she thought. He would have been a great lawyer. I wasn't going to tell you, but I felt it was unfair for this to end without you ever knowing. It's a little too late to be worrying about unfair. Barbara felt the pink flush rising up her neck and over her cheeks. He was even getting a kick out of dumping her and telling her this. We'd better get into choir, he said, looking across the parking lot. More people were arriving for the midsummer evensong. We're late. The service will be starting soon. You go. Aren't you coming? I don't know. Watching him walk across the parking lot toward the side door of the church, she was finally able to sort out what she was feeling. Used, humiliated, frustrated, but mostly blindly and volcanically pissed off. She followed him inside, almost running to catch up with him. If she'd thought her voice was shrill earlier, part of her, the reptilian part, was about to ratchet it up to a new frequency. She crashed through the side door and stormed up the center aisle after him like a scorched scorpion. The choirs were just finishing their warm-up. She grabbed his arm as he got to the back of the chancel near the altar and whirled him around. You've been imagining me naked since I was fifteen? And you never told me? How can anyone admit that? What am I supposed to do with that? Heads swung around. Mrs. Higginson, who had just entered the back of the church after walking over from her house to attend the service, stopped and looked at the two of them. Lucas started backing away, almost as if he were afraid she was going to attack him. Barbara felt like another copy of her was looking down from the top of the nave. I must seem deranged. Her voice stayed uncomfortably in the coloratura soprano range. Six months we've been sleeping together, and all this time you never told me I was your teenage fantasy? No one has ever done anything like this to me. I... Wait a minute, said a voice from the sopranos. He's been sleeping with you? 
It was Cheryl Blandford. The tone of her voice stopped Barbara like a wall of water. Well, began Barbara, speaking more quietly and looking around, as if realizing where she was for the first time. I guess it's out now, isn't it? I've humiliated myself, but I can't take it back. Sorry for the... But he told me he hadn't been with a woman in years, Cheryl said, with a quiet tremor in her voice. Barbara looked away from Lucas and moved closer to Cheryl, whose face looked as it had once when she'd shown up at choir practice and then remembered that she'd left her little dog tied up outside at the no-frills. Everyone was watching the two of them now, like an audience at a tennis match. Even Ashley put down the music he'd been arranging. And, just like two tennis players, Barbara and Cheryl were unaware of anything or anyone except their own rally. In the background, the bellows of the organ breathed like a sleeping dragon. Mrs. Higginson sat down in her pew in the front row. A few altos later swore that she had shaken her head and muttered to herself, "'That girl needs to get her head out of her ass.' "'He told me,' Cheryl went on, "'he had just been badly hurt in a marriage breakup and didn't know if he could ever love again. He wanted a woman who would tell him her hopes and fears. He wanted us to be as close as two soup spoons.' "'Butter knives,' breathed Barbara through clenched teeth. "'What? As close as butter knives. "'But Lucas said soup. "'Spoons, knives, which one was it? "'What did you say, Lucas?' "'In unison, like the trained choir singers they were, "'all heads turned their gaze to where Lucas stood. "'But he had disappeared. "'The parishioners were filling the pews, "'dressed in their colorful summer clothes.' The women had dropped off baskets, boxes, and plastic tubs of food in the church kitchen for the annual buffet chicken dinner, which had been a tradition for so long that no one remembered when it had started. Like Warren Athol's dog in the St. Bride's chancel, it seemed like it had always been there. Lex walked in the door of the church as if she was interested in buying it, and then swiveled her head around, eyes sweeping the nave to see if Fan had arrived yet. The two had been invited by Noby and Barbara to come and hear them in the choir. Neither was a churchgoer, especially Lex, who had given up organized religion about the same time she'd given up girl guides, and for about the same reason. It was something she had outgrown. Fan had regarded her bat mitzvah as her exit card from a patriarchal institution she thought should have become extinct centuries ago. It was only the second time the two of them had been in the church, the first being Noby's husband's funeral nearly three months ago, and they had come to the service this evening as a gesture of support. Not that Noby required this. She seemed as cheery as always, more so, in fact, as she'd apparently started dating again. Nevertheless, the two felt that attending her choir's special year-end service was the least they could do. Lex saw Fan's head bowed as she examined the Book of Common Prayer in a pew on the aisle close to the front, and walked over to sit beside her. "'We should save a place for Noby's friend, Chuck,' Lex said as she sat down. "'He's coming, but he'll be late because he had to work this afternoon. We finally get to meet him.' "'Work? On Sunday? What does he do?' "'Are you ready? He drives the hearse for the funeral home in town. Don't ask.' "'I wonder if the music will be as bad as Noby always says it is,' Van whispered. "'I'm not sure what to expect.' "'Well, one thing is for sure,' said Lex. "'It's bound to be the most boring hour you've spent recently. "'I'm glad I begged off Noby's invitation to the potluck supper after. 
elbow-to-elbow airline-style dining and a rubber chicken entree aren't my thing. They both gave their attention to the service folder, although most of the wording looked as cryptic as the Rosetta Stone. What on earth did Nunc Dimittis mean? As soon as the attention was off him, he'd looked for an escape, a way to get out of there with as little fuss as possible. He'd remembered a door set into the wall on the side of the chancel and slipped over to it. The door stuck a bit as he opened it, but in seconds he was inside and out of sight of what he imagined was an army of angry women. Now huddled in the dark room, he could hear Ashley's voice, "'Right now, everyone to the choir room to get gowned for the processional.' When his eyes adjusted to the gloom, he could see that he was in the chamber where all the organ pipes were. Diffused light filtered in from the chancel through cloth walls, revealing a monochrome forest of pipes in different sizes and shapes. Some towered over him, and others spread out at his feet, lined up like toy soldiers. As Ashley began to play the prelude music, the room filled with sound. He half expected to see little pistons popping up and down, but nothing seemed to be moving. As he thought this, a series of door-like baffles over his head swiveled, and the sound of the prelude was suddenly louder. He realized that, although he could see shapes moving around in the chancel, no one could see inside where he was. This might work. Maybe when the processional started and the attention was away from the door he'd used to come in, he could let himself out and be gone forever. One thing was sure. His career with the St. Ninian's choir was over, as were any further sessions with its women. He sat down on a box and thought. Had the thing with Barbie Keating been worth it all? Of course it had. Any thing with a woman was worth it. It all added up to an archive of touches, sighs, ecstasies, and ultimately tears. Predictable, but each one just different enough to be memorable. It was, he'd always thought, exactly what we were put on earth to experience. A perfect pastime. The music of the first hymn began, and all heads turned to the back of the church to watch the processional, led by the crucifer and the clergy. Then came the choir members from the two churches, two abreast and mixed together, St. Ninians in their black cassocks and white surplices, and St. Brides in their bright red cassocks and silver surplices. Someone remarked that the St. Brides choir looked like an explosion at a wrapping paper factory. When he was startled from his thoughts by the deafening sounds of Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, he realized he'd missed his chance to get out before the processional. The sound of the pipes was deafening. Now he would be stuck here for the whole service until they all went to the church hall for their stupid chicken dinner. Unless he used another way out that wasn't through the chancel. Lex nodded to their friends as they passed by but Fan was buried in her hymn-book trying to find her place. Noby tried to wave back and almost dropped her music. Barbara, looking flushed and grim, walked in a straight line, looking neither right nor left. As the service began, evening prayer, the book called it, Lex allowed the calm to settle over her. The choral responses sang to her in a way she had not anticipated. O God, make speed to save us. O Lord, make haste to help us. Was there something inside her that was seeking help? Nonsense. She shook her head and her ash-blonde hair flew. She got all the help she needed from her three bridge partners. There was a door on the left side of the chancel that led to a hallway. 
If he could get to that, he might get out without anyone noticing him. But he'd have to wait till no one was looking, most likely when the choir stood to sing the next number. Fan thought it was a beautiful service. She was loving the solemn, soothing syllables of 17th century English that came from the Book of Common Prayer. Thou deckest thyself with light, as it were a garment, and spreadest out the heavens like a curtain. She so wished that any of it could be true. After the Old Testament reading, the whole choir would stand, and everyone would be looking at the solo soprano who would begin the Magnificat. It was now or never. As he prepared to push the door open, he reminded himself which way he had to turn when he got out. Open quietly, slip to the left. Left would take him out the side door. Right would take him into the chancel. Go left. Go left. Don't attract any attention. He pushed. The door wouldn't open. He pushed harder. It didn't budge. He leaned his shoulder against it, but it still seemed stuck. Was it possible he was locked in? Would he never get out? Ashley began playing the musical introduction for the Stanford Magnificat in G. On the chancel steps, Warren Athol raised his arms to conduct. The choir boy from St. Bride's took a deep breath and began, My soul! He threw himself at the door as hard as he could in the confined space. It still didn't give, and he bounced backwards, slamming into something large and unyielding. Almost immediately, a sound like he'd never heard before filled the chamber and assaulted his ears, stunning him. It was like being in the middle of a giant foghorn. He threw himself at the door once more with all his weight, and it finally flew open. The sound that invaded and occupied the church would be discussed in pubs and at dinner tables in Lindisfarne County for years. People who had been on cruise vacations said it reminded them of the blast the ship's horn made as they were leaving port. Of course, they would always warn you beforehand with an announcement like, Passengers on the upper deck are advised that the ship's horn is about to sound. But there was no warning at St. Ninian's Anglican Church that Sunday evening. The sixteen-foot posauna pipe let forth with a sudden, deafening, and sustained low B-flat that drowned out the St. Bride's choir boy's high G and caused him to duck as though the ceiling were falling. The sound did not stop. At the console, Ashley was flipping, pulling, pushing, and kicking stops and couplers, trying to get it to cease. This was the mother of all ciphers. In another few seconds, he would have to shut down the bellows completely. Warren Athol, who was standing in the middle of the chancel conducting the choir, looked over at the organ console as though suspecting that Ashley had done this to him on purpose. S.S. Wesley ran to cower under the pulpit. In the confusion caused by the ear-piercing and incessant trombonian blat of the posauna pipe, few people noticed the figure that was ejected out a door at the side of the chancel, stumbling slightly as he skidded to a stop in front of the altar. The man looked around with wild eyes, and then seeing escape through the doors at the back of the church, darted down the chancel steps toward the congregation. Fan gasped as he tore down the aisle, past the pew where she and Lex sat. Daniel! The two locked eyes for a split second, then he disappeared into the narthex and out the doors. You know that guy? shouted Lex over the organ pipe's drone. He's not bad looking. That's my ex-husband, Fan shrieked. What the fuck is he doing here? 
At exactly that moment, the wall of organ pipe noise ceased, with the wheeze of an elephant heading resignedly into the graveyard. Fan's high decibel exclamation and question soared through the suddenly silent church like an ad-lib soprano descant. Some heads turned. In the stalls, Barbara's eyes grew wider, and her jaw dropped lower at Fan's revelation. But among the congregation, raw language was the least of the distractions. A dull, questioning hubbub arose, which quickly grew to a clattering roar as people explained to their friends what they thought they'd seen. Outside, there was the sound of a roaring engine, screeching tires, breaking glass, and more screeching tires. But not many noticed. There was too much going on right there in the church. One thing was sure. There was going to be lots to talk about at the foul supper. I hope you enjoyed this chapter of Thornside Stories, A Mix of Sun and Cloud, written and narrated by me, Christopher Cameron. I'll have another chapter for you next week. <laughs>